We're all familiar with a compass. Many of us were, maybe most of us, received one somewhere along the way as uh, little children or, or uh, growing up somewhere. It's a relatively simple device, surprisingly simple. Uh, it was first really discovered about 200 BC by the Chinese who didn't realize how to use it for another 1,200 years. It was primarily just a toy, a trinket of magic and divination for a long time until about 1,000 B.C. when they realized that they could use it in military exercises and in expeditions. And then it eventually made its way another 100 years to naval officers who used it to guide their vessels until around 1300 A.D. when it finally arrived in Europe People discovered the device and were fascinated by it, concluding that it must in some way be drawn to some sort of mysterious northern magnetic mountain. Or some of them thought it was a magnetic island that must exist somewhere up north. Uh, some people thought maybe even maybe a magnetic star that was out there that always drew the needle to the north. It wasn't until about 1600 that people began to surmise that maybe the earth itself was magnetized and that eventually what we came to realize is that there is a magnetic northern pole. What a lot of people still don't know even today, though, is that that northern pole is moving. It was an expedition in 1946 that first discovered it on the Prince of Wales Island in a far northwest uh, corner of Canada, they determined to be the magnetic northern field, the magnetic northern pole that draws our compasses always to the north. But further expeditions have identified that that pole is moving. At first, nine kilometers per year, and now almost 41 kilometers every year, it's drifting further and further to the northwest. So I guess if we're long, around long enough, if the Lord tarries, the north will be south and our compasses will all be out of whack, right? Well, it's a feeling, fitting illustration for our passage as we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning because it, it sort of draws maybe a bit of a contrast for us because the Apostle Paul has been laboring for a couple of chapters in 1 Corinthians to establish a true north. For the Corinthian believers, a true point, a true magnet, if you will, for their attentions, for their affections, for their foundation, for all their understanding, for all their truth, a true source from whom they derive all things and to whom they give glory for all things. And he has already sort of outlined it in chapter one. You remember when he says that God Jesus Christ became for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. His goal in all of this is that we would find everything that we need for life and godliness and that we would consequently give all glory in life and in godliness to the Lord alone. That's been really his point, is trying to establish that, trying to drill down those convictions because this was a church that had become enamored with the ways of the world. They had become enamored with the wisdom of the world. They had become enamored with the principles of the world, the knowledge of the world, and ultimately the glory of the world. 
They lived in a society that had philosophy schools where people would set up shop out of their houses and lecture on all kinds of topics of life and wisdom and happiness and all of these things. And folks would flock to their houses from all over Greece and the Roman Empire to hear these philosophers. And so these Corinthian believers longed to have that kind of status, to have that kind of esteem to have that kind of recognition for their message. They wanted to be esteemed by the world, and so they began to sound the, the same notes, the same words, to use the same wisdom, to mimic what was around them. But Paul says you can't do that because God has condemned the wisdom of the world. It's not an option. It's an opponent. It's an antagonist to everything God's called you to do. And with that in mind, as we come to chapter 3, Paul now is taking and beginning to apply that to his own ministry, to his own work in the church, and consequently to the work of everyone else in the church as well. Like Like a magnetic pole that draws us all, we're to have a fixed point, a fixed focus, a fixed source for all that we do. But unlike even the real pole that draws our magnetic compass, it can't be moving and it can't be shifting and it can't be changing with all the newest fads, with all the newest ages, with all the newest times, with all the whims, with all the opinions that fly through the church from age to age, from year to year, with leader to leader. You can't be following after in all these different directions. And certainly within a body, within a church, you can't have various leaders, various groups who are trying to pursue various directions or obviously you're going to rip the church apart. Well, that's what was happening in Corinth. These people were aligning themselves along different directions and labeling themselves with the names of prominent leaders. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Peter. Some of them saying even I am of Christ. All marching to a different drum. Well, Paul's goal in chapter 3 is to align them all back to the one single pole, the one single place, the one single source that's always to drive the church, that's always to be the foundation, that's always to be the guide. And with that come a number of convictions that he lays out for us here, all aimed at one particular goal that we find really at the end of verse 10. When Paul says, let each one take care how he builds. That's really the the focal point of this whole section is he's talking to us now about building, about working, about laboring, about ministering within the church. And remember, he's been sort of comparing this to, to agricultural work, to construction work, talking about the church being God's field, talking about the church being God's building, talking about us laboring Within that environment and in each one of these analogies and in all that Paul's saying, his message is clear that we must be careful. We must be circumspect. 
to make sure that we are building with the right convictions, with the right kind of care in the Lord's ministry. To that end, Paul lays out here a number of convictions that he brought to the ministry, and consequently every faithful minister will bring. Seven, really, convictions that call for careful workers in God's church. Paul will talk about the servant status of each one of us, the stewardship responsibility we have. He'll talk about the skill that's required in our labor. He'll talk about the significant place of Christ, the scrutiny of our work, the surety of our reward, and ultimately the sacredness of the church. All these things that bore on Paul's mind as he worked, as he labored in the field the Lord had given him. Let's look first of all at the servant status, the servant status of each worker. We touched on this last week, but we need to return to it because it really kind of introduces everything else that Paul will say throughout chapter 3 and into chapter 4. It's sort of this, this backdrop of putting people in their place. As a matter of fact, over in chapter Six, four verse six, he says, "I will apply. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, that you might learn by us not to go beyond what is written." He's going to frame all this stuff so that people will begin to think about the church, look at the church, and build in the church and work in the church according to what is written, not according to their distorted views of it. He says there in verse 6 of chapter 4 that some of them taking labels of these teachers themselves were puffing themselves up against one another. They were trying to jockey for position. They were trying to draw glory for themselves. They were trying to, to garner esteem, to present themselves as having the key of wisdom. When in fact that wisdom is found only with the Lord. As a matter of fact, back in chapter 3, verse 5, this is Paul's point when he says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? What are they? They are, he says, servants through whom you believe. Diakonoi, as we said last week, these are table waiters. That's what the word basically came to mean. The people who do the most menial kind of tasks. They were not the chefs. They were not the cooks. They were the ones who simply took what was cooked up and delivered it to you. They were servants as the Lord assigned to each one his various roles. That's what Paul means when he goes on to say, I planted, in verse 6, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He repeats that twice to get his point across. God gives the growth. God gives the growth. The Lord assigns each one his tasks. Each servant is placed where he is according to God's design, according to God's sovereign ordaining. Each one is placed there, and he does his work, whether it's tilling or whether it's planting or whether it's watering or whether it's harvesting. He does his work as unto the Lord, but trusting the Lord with the, with the results. He doesn't look at himself as the source. He doesn't look at himself 
as the one who produces, he doesn't look at himself as the one who gives growth. Churches and individuals have a tendency to miss this. Perhaps they grew under a particular teacher. Perhaps they grew in a particular church during a particular time in their life. Perhaps they have some sort of affinity with some personality, with some teacher. Perhaps they, they are attracted to some style or whatever it might be. And so they, they take it a step further. They go beyond this plain and clear teaching of Scripture. And they begin to lend their primary loyalty no longer to God alone, but to some particular ministry, to some particular individual. These Corinthians had done that attaching themselves to, Paul, to Apollos or to Paul or to Peter or whatever it might be. And they had begun to go beyond what Scripture clearly taught. That all things come from God. They all depend on Him. This is what Paul's saying. One plants, one waters. The results are up to God. The point is that there are many who labor with equal faithfulness, but see different results. The point is not their results, but their faithfulness. We have a hard time in our country because we have a tendency to equate big with good. Just sort of the natural transfer in our minds. Grandiose, esteemed, popular, trendy, equals good. Of course, by that implication, we have to realize that the fastest growing church in America is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. Their growth, obviously, though, isn't a sign of their faithfulness because they have an apostate gospel. The issue isn't outward results. That's what Paul's getting at. The issue isn't outward results. The issue is looking at yourself properly before the Lord. Realizing that the growth comes from Him. Now, this has always been the attitude of every faithful, godly worshiper of the Lord. All the way back in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of language, particularly in the Psalms, about how the Lord provides, how the Lord waters, how the Lord provides the rains, how the Lord brings the increase, how the Lord brings the bounty. Psalm 65, for example, Jewish farmers would sing, You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of the Lord is full of water. You provide their grains so that you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. This is a song they would sing as they come to the temple, bringing their sheaths of offerings, sheaths of grain offerings and meal offerings, all the produce of their labor. 
They would come with the ready recognition that no matter what was being brought, no matter what was being produced, it was there because the Lord provided it. In fact, that's the whole idea behind the sacrifice in the temple. It's coming as a recognition that what they had was provided by God. They would bring these things in ready recognition, even though they themselves had labored day by day by the sweat of their brow, even though they had paid attention to the calendar and planted in season and tilled the soil, even though they rose up early and stayed up late, even though they timed their harvest and tended to their livestock and planted their seed on time and in proper rows and in everything that was required of them. And yet when the ground yielded its produce, they were keenly aware of where it came from. In other words, don't excuse what Paul's saying here as some covering for irresponsibility. Don't take the sovereignty of God as some cloak for your slothfulness. That's not the point. The point is not that every single person working is therefore all equal and all recognized uh, equally. That there is no distinction, that there is no need for hard labor and for diligent work. As a matter of fact, turn with me to chapter 15 because I want to draw a little bit of a contrast for you. 1 Corinthians 15, verse verse 9. Paul says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted, he says, the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Same man that wrote chapter 3, the same man writing to the same church in the same time frame, same situation. In one breath can say, I planted in Apollos water, but God caused the increase. In another breath he can say, I worked harder. You see, because it's the same view of God that dictates both of those things for the Apostle Paul. His high view of God makes him recognize that after all of his labors, the produce, the result, the success comes to him by God. It's that same high view of God that also drives him to pour out his life as a sacrifice daily, to labor with all of his might because he knows that the God he worships and the God he serves is worthy of absolutely the best he has to give. It's a deficient view of God that would cause you to draw back from such a sacrifice just as it's a deficient view of God that would make you think that the results are up to you. Keep turning your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Just to give you a little example of this man who trusted in God's sovereignty and knew that the outcome was up to God. And yet in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. 
Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden for you, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Paul draws on the shameful image of parents who are not even willing to make plans for their children, who aren't even willing to prepare for the future to provide for their children, whether it be 10 years from now or 10 days from now, people who aren't willing to think about the needs of their children and provide for their children, who are sitting back and thinking that somehow all these children they have are supposed to serve them are supposed to do all the work and all the labor. Paul draws on that analogy to say, no, that's not the way it works. I'm planning to come to you, and I'm going to provide for myself. I'm going to labor with my own hands, or I'm going to draw on the gifts of other churches. I'm going to come to you, and I've got a plan. I'm going to pour my life into you. I'm going to provide for myself so that you don't have to be um, paying for me. I'm going to do all of these things, he says, I'm going to spend and be expended. I'm going to, I'm going to pour out everything I have, he says, for the sake of your souls. Paul was compelled by desire to see the church grow. He was compelled by desire to see people progress spiritually. He was compelled by a deep longing to see the church mature and develop and be as successful as it could be. He would do literally all that was in his power in service to that goal. And yet at the back of his mind, always in the midst of all of that, there was the realization that it was God who brought the growth. Back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is the first conviction that drives every careful worker of God. It's... It's the recognition of your role. You're just a servant. You're not the source. You're not the chef. You're not the provider. All you are doing is taking what the Lord has given to you and delivering it over as God has designed. That sort of takes us to our second conviction, which is the stewardship responsibility. The stewardship responsibility of every worker. This is a second conviction that drives every careful worker. The realization that although God is the one who's providing the increase, that there will be an accounting for how we conduct ourselves within the work of the ministry. Paul says here in verse 8, He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. We're all working, he says, as one. We're all working for the same goal, for the same glory, with the same tools, with the same gospel under the same Lord. Some of us are planting, some of us are watering, some of us are tilling, some of us are harvesting. The thing that determines what kind of worker we are, though, isn't the result. 
It is the accountability, the judgment that God will bring one day. It is the stewardship responsibility that we have. By the way, when Paul says one plants and one waters, he's not talking about the different content that some people give, that some people are maybe, you know, just, they're, they're deep, they deeply water and nourish, and some people are just simple and they're just planting little seeds. He's not talking about the content of what these people are presenting. They all presented the gospel. He's talking about the sequence. The sequence. There are some people who are tilling up the hard soil, rocky ground, in the lives of the people that they minister to, in the lives of people that they're counseling, people they're evangelizing. And they may not be the one who sees it all the way through to fruition, but they take their role as servants, and in that role, they want to be faithful to present to deliver what God has given them. And then there are others who come along and they, they, they're planting the seeds, they're watering, they're doing whatever the Lord has assigned to each one, but they're all doing it in recognition that God is the one who will judge. God is the one who will examine. God is the one who will determine because it's ultimately God to whom you will give an account as stewards of His possession, of His church. We're all doing this, but Paul says, don't confuse what I'm saying here to suggest that every worker is exactly equal then. Because each one will receive his wages according to his labor. Distinctions will be made. They're just not distinctions that you'll necessarily always see in this life. Anyone can point out distinctions, exalt one leader over another, but it will be God who rewards them for their individual work. And that reward will not be for the increase which God brings, but for the faithfulness. That's Paul's point, by the way, down in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. He says, look, that's what we're servants. We're stewards. We've been entrusted with something. And so the primary characteristic is that you're trustworthy. That you're faithful with what's been given to you. Or back in, back up in verse Eight, excuse me, verse 9. It's the fact that we are fellow workers with God. We say, what's that all about? He's just highlighting the fact that you can be a worker and not be a worker with God. That you can be a worker and actually be working against God. That you can actually be hindering the work. Now, I'm, I'm like anyone else. I always love help on my projects. But you know some help is not help, particularly the 12 and under kind, right? I mean, it's a joy, but 
you know, sometimes helpers slow down the process and sometimes helpers, you have to help them get out of their mess and they're not always fellow workers. But we need to be fellow workers with God. We're not there playing games with His church. We're not here marking out our own path. We're not here deciding our own design. We're not here toying around with His project. We're workers with assigned tasks, assigned duties. And we need to do it with maturity. That brings us to the third conviction that drives every careful worker, and that's the skill that's required. The skill that's required. Paul says in verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Paul describes himself as a a skilled, or some translations say a wise master builder. The ESV translates it skilled because that's what the word wise basically meant. That's the way it was used. In the Old Testament, when we talk about the people that constructed the tabernacle, the craftsmen, it talked about how they built and constructed the tabernacle with wisdom. And the ones who played the instruments played the instruments with wisdom. Wisdom And the ones who crafted the metal and crafted the, the, the stones and the jewels, they did so with wisdom. And even the women who weaved the, the, the material and embroidered it, it says they did so with wisdom. In other words, the Old Testament in a Jewish mindset, wisdom was equated with skill, with attention to detail. With a high level of training. And so Paul calls himself here a wise master builder. A skilled master builder. The word is architecton. Obviously we get our word architect from that. But this isn't describing a person that sits in an office with sheets of paper drawing drawing schemes and, and drawings of buildings. That wasn't an architect in Paul's day. Architects were like chief engineers who would be out on the project site. They were project managers who were there making sure that the buildings were going together according to their design. And so here, here he is, a, uh, a chief master builder, a chief engineer, a chief architect on the project of God's church, building it, watching over every detail, making sure it goes together. And this is the value of having a skilled worker. Some of you know I'm a bit of a do-it-yourselfer, but I always tell my wife, I'm so thankful that we don't have to live by my labors because honestly, we would starve. It takes me so long to do something. And you know why it takes me long? It takes me long because I wind up inevitably cutting something the wrong length or worse, I wind up spending a lot of time researching and examining something and realizing that I don't even need to do it. This is the problem with amateurs. They're always chasing after the wrong things. They're always adding to the project things that aren't necessary. They're always being distracted by all the wrong things. They don't have zeroed in focus on exactly what needs to take place in order to accomplish the building in the right, sky, at right time, the right schedule with the right materials in the right way. 
That's a skilled worker. That's a skilled master builder. This is what Paul says he was. I was a skilled builder. I got on the project and I didn't waste time with all the distractions, with all the, all the wranglings, with all the mismeasurements. I came at the Lord's church, he says, and I laid a foundation. That's sort of his summary for his work in Corinth, 18 months of preaching the gospel, 18 months of, of presenting to them Christ. He described it back in chapter 2, remember, the first couple of verses. When I was among you, brothers, I didn't proclaim to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, but I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's his summary statement of his, of his architectural focus. He came knowing exactly what it takes to build a church, to build a spiritual life that will stand the test of time, and he gave his attention to that alone. And he laid the foundation. This is important. Paul will go on to say, In verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Because he realizes that there are some people who go about working in the church, building the church, laboring in the church, sowing their seeds or whatever it might be. He knows that there are people who go about that work wanting to lay other foundations. They come at it without the skill, without the eye of a a trained engineer. They go about laying foundations that were never meant to be laid and building the church with materials that were never meant to be built with. They go about building the church around their own ceremonies, around their own rituals, around their own experiences. People try to lay foundations all the time and build churches up that way. And it isn't about faithfulness to the preaching of Christ and the preaching of the gospel and keeping central on that one point. It isn't about that at all. It's all about the experience that you have and the way that you feel when you leave out the door or the way that you feel when you're around the other people or all those other things that really are ancillary to the construction of the building. Jesus, you remember, talked about this in His great sermon on the mount talked about people who hear his words and some are like a man who building a house digs down deep and lays the foundation on a rock and when the flood arises and the streams broke against the house it could not shake it because it had been built belt, uh, excuse me well built but the one who hears and does not do them that is do my words is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. There are some people who build the church that way. It's all about getting together 
some aesthetically appealing looking thing with no thought to the foundation. No thought about the winds that will beat against the lives of the people who are in that church. No thought about the temptations and the trials, the tribulations. No thought about laying the kind of foundation that people need in order to grow in godliness and progress on with the Lord and stay faithful to Him. And so these churches are full of people who are sprouting up maybe quickly, but, but soon they are finding their lives buffeted by temptation and by trial. And they're blasted away because they have been poorly built. Jesus compares them to two builders. Both of them put a structure up. Probably both structures are admired at some point. Maybe they both even look equal in the glistening sunlight and the nice weather and the smooth sailing. The real difference isn't seen till later. When the trials and the winds and the storm come. These are the people just like in Ezekiel's day. They give lip service to the scripture. A smattering of verses. But no real heart. God tells Ezekiel, he says, son of man, your people are whispering behind your back. They talk about you in their houses. They whisper about you at the door saying, come, let us have some fun. Let us go hear the prophet. Tell us what the Lord is saying. So they come pretending to be sincere and sit before you listening, but they have no intention of doing what I tell them. They express their love with their mouths, but their hearts seek only after wealth. You're very entertaining to them, like someone who sings love songs with a beautiful voice or plays fine music on an instrument. They hear what you say, but they do not do it. And when all the terrible things happen to them, as they certainly will, then they will know a prophet has been among them. This is the way people gather in churches all the time. They sing songs of love to God. They sing songs of beautiful music together. They, they, they pretend as if they want to do God's will. But when the rubber meets the road, when the trial comes, when the temptation arises, they have no foundation under them. They are completely swept away. They do not follow through and do the Lord's will because they have not had the right kind of foundation. They're like people in the, in the book of James who, who give a peek into the Word of God but leave and forget what they saw. It soon fades under the superficiality of their religious experience. They're a forgetful hearer. Those well-known words engraved on a cathedral in Lubbock, Germany sort of summarize this. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me the way and walk me not. You call me life and live me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. You got no one else to blame. You've not built a foundation. 
You've not laid the groundwork. You've been building with all these faulty materials. You've been placing yourself under shallow teaching. You've been pursuing after God based solely on your experience, on your feelings. You haven't gone to the people who will work with you like a skilled and wise engineer, like a wise builder. Someone who takes care with the way that they construct the church, the way they guide your spiritual life. You've built your life, you've built your ministry on sand. And as it all comes crumbling down, you've got no one to blame but yourself. No one to blame but yourself. Careful workers, they understand. They understand the need for skill. They understand the need for attention. They understand the need for the right materials. They understand that they are not the ones who draw up the plans. They're not the ones who bake the meal. They're not the ones who call the shots. They're servants. They're stewards. And they're skilled workers building just as the Lord designed. Four other convictions that Paul lays out for us here that we'll have to get to next week. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we hear the words of the Apostle Paul. We understand that he set a path and blazed a trail that we should follow every generation, every church, every worker called to the same magnetic pole which is Christ, immovable indeed for us, the sole and singular foundation on which we build. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take our place, to understand our role, to rivet our hearts to Him. Guard us from all the distracting, frivolous and playful things that people want to import into the church. Make us the skilled workers that you demand. Because your demands will be that to which we answer one day. And we want to be found faithful. Day in and day out, Lord, may our hearts always be yours. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.